Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. Each week, a recovered alcoholic woman is interviewed and asked questions about certain topics surrounding her journey of recovery with your host, Stephanie Crawford. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host of this here podcast, Recover Out Loud. And today on Recover Out Loud, we are doing our flagship series, Recovered Interviews with Alcoholic Women. And today we have on Susan L. all the way from Chicago, live and in person. And she is going to be sharing her experience, strength, and hope with us today. Um, And so, Susan, my first question is always, if you could just give us a little bit of background information about yourself, what your alcoholism looked like, why you got sober, and, and we'll just go from there. All right. First of all, thank you for having me, Stephanie. This is an honor. My name's Susan. I've been, uh, I'm a recovered alcoholic sober since February 19th of 2009. So I just recently got 13 years under my belt. Feels good. Congratulations. Thank you. I didn't think I'd be alive, you know. To be alive and sober is (laughs) double good, right? Mm -hmm. Let's see, my uh, drinking, well, I'm going to say my first real exposure to alcoholism was in my home growing up. My mother was an alcoholic, and not to talk about her drinking too much, although it does play into mine a little bit now and a little bit later on in the steps, but... I learned from my mother how how to get away with drinking for so long, and that was don't don't be too loud, don't throw things, <laughs> things like that. Just be fly under the radar. If you fly under the ra- radar, you can keep this going a lot longer. I've been to Catholic school. Oh, and and also as a result of my mother. I believe I became very um, self-sufficient because it is true that, you know, uh, the alcoholic is not totally present. So I ended up taking care of myself an awful lot in my uh, childhood. My uh, background is I went, I was raised Catholic and I went to Catholic school uh, throughout school, grade school, high school and college. You know, I still have <laughs> trouble with the God part of this book. Anyway, um, I knew I, I, I felt it was inevitable that I was going to be an alcoholic. I think I drank, the allergy was present at the beginning of my drinking sometime in high school. I just knew that I was going to drink, drink until the jig was up. Uh, so, of course, I wanted to prolong or the jig as long as I could. Um, 
but I felt that it was kind of destined. And I, I didn't know anything about allergy. I didn't know anything about obsession. I didn't know any of that. But I know that I am alcoholic, and I'm not alcoholic because, because my mother was, unless, you know, unless the genetics plays into it, which probably does some. But I'm alcoholic because I am. That's all there is to it. So, you know, drinking on, high, drinking on weekends for high school, couldn't wait for weekends, that kind of thing, especially because we went to an all-girls school. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't a lot to do. If you didn't have a boyfriend, you were, you know, relegated to going out with your girlfriends or going to, going to somebody's house, whoever's parents weren't home, was kind of my weekends. And then I went to college, and although I didn't date very much at all in high school, when I got to college, it was like, it was wonderful. Because I I always thought, well, maybe I just wasn't attractive. And then that didn't turn out to be the case, I don't think, I don't know. I had a lot going on in, in college. One of the people that I dated toward my senior, junior year, turned out to be my husband. He lived next door. He, we, we were married right after school, right after graduation. He interviewed with Texas Instruments in Dallas, and he said, well, what do you think about moving to Texas? It's 82 degrees here, and it was November. And I said, cool, let's go. So, you know, we thought we'd stay here for a couple of years, and we stayed. I lived in Plano for 38 years, so so much for moving around the country. So my children were raised there and everything in Plano, and, and uh, I love Texas. So as far as drinking goes, party, 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 throughout my 20s, throughout my 30s. I didn't get sober until I was 51 years old. That's how long I was able to prolong this, this deal. And it was, it took threat of divorce. Uh, my husband used to like to write letters because talking to me wasn't doing any good. And so he'd write letters and, and I remember he, he ended one saying, divorce is not an option. And I read into that, keep drinking, right? you know, yeah, <laughs> divorce is not an option. Then Stopping drinking is not an option either. Until the very end of my drinking, I mean, I never was looking for a way to stop. I was looking for a way to manage it and control it mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't get in trouble. Stopping drinking entirely was never on my horizon. It just wasn't necessary, I didn't think. And he knew it. He'd say, you know, you just can't have that first drink because then you're going to get drunk. That's, you know, and our families say that and say it and say it. They're right. And I knew it. I knew, you know, one way to tell is I knew that I would rather have zero drinks than one drink or two drinks. I would rather have none mm -hmm. because uh, that allergy creeps in there and um, it makes it very uncomfortable. So it does make it uncomfortable. It is. It's terrible. So we were married for 29 years, and 28 years on paper, or 29 years on paper, 28 years, and then the last year we were separated and going through a pretty horrific divorce. So when I get sponsees that say, you know, I can't do this, and I'm like, mm, 
you can. And I'm mm-hmm. a I'm a good example of how you go through divorce somewhat gracefully <laughs> and with a little dignity, I hope, because it, it was tough and um, he was very angry. Yeah. Rightfully so. And so it, it was it was tough. So my first year of sobriety was getting divorced. I've been to three rehabs. The first one, the, I count the first one and the second one. They were they were back to back in the summer of 2007. I had an intervention 2007 Easter Sunday, April 7th, 2007. I my. The, the interventionist had picked out this place in Utah. You know, I thought he was, they were, he was badgering me, get on, you know, come with me, get on the airplane with me. And I thought, you're crazy. You think I'm going to get on an airplane with this little gnome of a man that I've never, <laughs> I, I, no way. And so I didn't go, but I was kicked out of the house. Wow. So I went to a hotel. And this is while you were married? Yes. Okay. And I was uh, kicked out. I went to a hotel, was researching. I said, well, I want to have some say in where I go. What What the hell is Utah about, you know? So I did. I checked. I, I looked into it. I was looking for, <laughs> if it was in Malibu, what do you mean it's not on the beach? <laughs> <laughs> Why on earth would I want to walk to the beach, you know? Um I had it all wrong. Also, I was also looking for, I had seen like on Donahue or, you know, one of those old-timey talk shows, some fellow that said that he had the solution to being able to back out of alcoholism and drink like a normal person. And I kept promising my husband that I'm going to find this book. You know, I was half half-assing it trying to find this book um did you ever find it no but um i i learned later on what it probably was and i won't say because that would be i'd be dissing it pretty badly from another a very good speaker one of the circuit type speakers mentioned it one time and i thought that that would have been it. That so you was never it. got to try to see if it worked. So I never got to try. The The circuit speaker who mentioned it said, uh, yeah, th- those methods will work great if you're a hard drinker. Right. Those methods will not work with a real alcoholic. So anyway, I, I'm sitting in the hotel for two weeks looking for a place to go. I didn't end up in Malibu. I ended up at that place in Utah. <laughs> Two weeks later, I ended up there. After four weeks there, I wanted to get closer to Texas. I went to a rehab in Argyle, Texas. Those first two rehabs, you know, I had no idea if they were good or bad. It's only in hindsight that I can judge them. I remember doing a lot of arts and crafts. I remember writing down what God what God was, you know, my, my, the counselor there said, you know, what would your God look like? Or what would you want them to be? And, you know, kind of like you hear in the rooms now, sometimes uh, sponsors have you do that for step two. Anyway, it, it, it wasn't 
good. There was very little. They said, here, here's this book, read it. And that was just about all that was mentioned at those first two places. I managed to stay dry for 14 months coming out of that uh, that experience, which was pretty good considering I really didn't. And I was going to uh, AA, kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of had a sponsor. I got stuck on my God box because I didn't have any magazines to decorate it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> that oh. is true. Oh, I didn't get a do- uh, God box. How were um, you? How were you feeling during those fourteen months? Sometimes, sometimes great, mostly miserable, mm-hmm. restless, irritable, and discontented. I think, and I think that that's that's a good definition. You know, the book doesn't doesn't mention. It says that our lives have become unmanageable, but it doesn't give do a real good job about what does unmanageable mean. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. My my life is a mess when I am a dry drunk. My life is a mess when I'm managing a dry or drunk. Mm-hmm. That's unmanageable. You know, it's a failure mm-hmm. no matter what. Where was I? Um, oh, we were talking about how you were staying dry for the oh, 14 months. Yeah, yeah, for 14 months. And then, you know, out of the blue, I felt left out. We were at our lake house and my... My husband was playing with the kids, and I felt left out. You know, why aren't you asking me to come join the fun and games? I just drank again, and I drank wildly, and I drank wildly for a month. My son was 10 years old at the time. There was an incident where I fell down in the garage. Um, I, I, I fell down in the garage in front of him. Um, someone else, thank God, had brought him home that day. It was not my day for carpool. He was afraid. He was scared to death of me um, that day. Uh, my daughter was seven, is seven years older, so she really got um, a, a bigger dose of mom's alcoholism uh, than the little than the little one. Although you know, ten is 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 old enough. Throughout the years in sobriety, um, he's asked me many times, "Were you drunk when?" this and that happened, or how about this, that, and the other thing? Were you drunk then? So I don't know. He couldn't, he didn't really know. As a matter of fact, they unfortunately included him in that intervention, and he was only nine then, Mm. Uh, barely nine, just a month past his birthday. How old were your kids when you got sober? Claire, I think 16, fifth grade. Oh, yeah, so that's a long time. 10, 11. That's a long time to live with an alcoholic mother. Yes, yes, and I did. I lived alone with my alcoholic mother. Uh, My parents divorced when I was 14, and I don't know what my mom was thinking. She got married two weeks before her 19th birthday. She'd never worked a day in her life, and she was divorcing my dad. She couldn't do anything. I don't know. Crazy. But anyway, I ended up living with her. I thought she needed me, and she really did. Mm. So there's, you know, managing my life, trying to manage her life. Then we get a big melting pot of mess. I drank again. My, my, I had a therapist, and she said, you need to go to this particular rehab. It's a big book thumper place. Mm. And I went to that rehab, and I got out uh, after four weeks. Um, 
while I, 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 maybe I should talk about it. I know I mentioned that I wouldn't mind sharing my step three experience. Mm -hmm. My step three experience, I believe that it happened at that rehab. This, this rehab had the guts, I guess, to, I guess that's what you call it, to um, talk a lot about big book stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, was this your first time hearing the big book? No. Oh, so they were talking about it then at the meeting oh, you were oh, going to? Yeah. Oh, okay. Kind of, sort of. Okay. You know. and, and then they had me read it um, at the other two rehabs. But, you know, the counselors didn't really know what was in it. I can say that again in retrospect. So, yeah, well, it was certainly the first time I heard it right, for sure, mm-hmm. um, was at this rehab. So I went in there on February 19th. 2009 I was uh dry because my ego wouldn't let me show up drunk like they might think I'm an alcoholic (laughs) if I showed up to rehab drunk so I showed up sober after eight days there I had the a blinding white light experience like Bill did and my obsession was removed and not in a oh, you're in rehab, can't drink kind of way. I know what that is. Mm -hmm. I I knew what that was. This was uh, very different. It was uh, very, very different. And when I look back on it again, I think that during that first week and actually my whole stay in that good rehab, um, I had completed steps one, two, and three in a fashion in that, you know, I had a step one experience. I was done. I knew I was alcoholic. I was learning about what alcoholism was, and I was absolutely done. I burned a 28-year marriage, soon to be 29, and I was done. Do I knew. That, oh, sorry. Oh. Do you think that step one experience happened before you came into the rehab, or do you think that was a surrender that happened at the rehab? No, it happened before. Mm-hmm. I meant business mm-hmm. this time. Okay. This time I meant business. I was angry that I was killing my marriage. Mm. I was very angry. At myself, and I was very angry at him, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. I figured that um, step two, you know, I knew innately, and I think so many people do as well, that God has something to do with this. And while I was sitting in meetings for that 14 month or 14 months of dryness, I was just basically waiting for a God brick to fall from the sky. Nobody told me that that wasn't the way it, it worked. Right. Um, I must say that the first couple times I went to meetings, I was beset upon by a lot of ladies. Um, and, um, you know, I thought I have to look for somebody who's my age and I have to look for somebody who likes to do what I like to do. And what um, did you like to do besides drink? Though? I know I, I had a hard time with that. Maybe, you know, sober bowling or something. Right. I don't know. So that's exactly the, the sponsor that um, I picked out was somebody that was, you know, kind of like me. She was five year sober so that made her qualified because there are these ideas out there about what a sponsor is supposed to have or supposed to be which are not supported by the literature in any respect at all 
So I knew that God was involved. I had no problem with that. And step two, my favorite part of the book too, the spiritual awakening appendix. Mm. In there, it describes exactly how I feel about my my higher power. Exactly. But uh, to to finish up on this thought, um, so step three is making the decision. I think I, I made the decision before. That's what I made the decision about before mm-hmm. I even got to that rehab. I was going to be done. I was going to be done. And I had proven to myself that I couldn't do it on my own by that 14-month dry period. I think everybody, I don't know if it's true, but in my mind, um, you don't know that you're powerless unless you try to stop at least once. Mm-hmm. And if you stop, if you do it, great, keep on going. And if you can't, then okay, you've proven it to yourself, kind of like the page 32 thing, you know, um, uh, belly up to the bar and order one and see if you can do it how many times um, in a row, if at all. Right. Um, so uh, so I think I had done those that one, two, and three, and I went to bed uh, on a night, eight, eight, eight days into the rehab, and I woke up from kind of sweaty. I was having a dream. It was February in Texas. I thought it was important. I grabbed my notebook and my cigarettes and a sweatshirt, and I went outside because I couldn't smoke in the room, and I had a roommate. Uh, I I can just see this cinematically, you know, the wind blowing through my tousled hair. The the weird thing is I had this experience with deer. I was sitting there writing, and then I see this mother deer comes into my view. Remember, I'm in the hill country, so there are a lot of deer about. Um, But this mother deer came, and she was rather close to me. And this was happening outside. This was happening outside while I was watching. I thought, I didn't come out, I don't think I was brought out here to write this down in my notebook or write down what I was writing down, that dream. I think I was brought outside to see these deer. The mother deer, I didn't know she was a mother yet, but this deer, she turned around and she walked up the hill and then she turned around and just looked down the hill back the way she had come. Then about a minute later, there was another deer, and I would say that it was one that maybe she had the year before. It was a medium-sized deer. The medium-sized deer did the same thing. It came out, kind of sniffed the air a little bit, went up the hill, turned around, and looked where she had come from, or it had come from. And then um, finally a little Bambi beer, beer, a little Bambi deer came uh, clopsing through, did the same thing, went up the hill. When the three of them had, had congregated, they all three in unison turned around and they just went up over the hill and out of sight. And I'm going to show this to you, Stephanie. This is my screensaver. Uh, Isn't that lovely? That's not them. This uh, is just a wonderful image that I got. And I was like, holy cow, it was right after that, too. Really? Yeah, I mean, what are the chances? I'm showing her a picture of a mother deer and two baby deers, exactly like what I had seen. So I kept it. It's my, it it was cool. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know if it had anything to do with it, but I'll tell you when I woke up. Oh, when I so I went inside, I just bawled. I just cried and cried. And when I woke up again in the morning, I went out to the um, to the congregating place. We had a, a big community room, and I was sitting outside of it in an Adirondack chair, and everything was just this really crystal. There were trees and the leaves. I could see the outline of the leaves. And I seriously felt something infused into my body. It just, power. Mm -hmm. um, being of Catholic background, I would say Holy Spirit. But I, I felt like I could shoot lightning bolts out of my fingertips. It wow. was really neat. And I remember this one fellow um, came up to me, and I didn't say word one to him, and I wasn't doing anything in particular. And he said, wow, did something happen to you? And yeah, it was like, really, wow. Um, yes, indeedy, something happened. And I was on fire. I was on fire from then on. And... Um, most definitely the obsession was removed that day in a, in a very real, real way. Wow. I knew that I had to follow up if I wanted it to stay, even though I didn't know that line in the book. It could have little permanent effect unless followed immediately by, a, by facing my facts. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that yet, but I knew I was going to do the work, mm -hmm. as indeed I did. And did you do that whenever you got out? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, and and I did. Um, was this your first time ever doing the steps? Uh, well, like I said, I was kind of, sort of had a sponsor, but I never got past two. Because so, of the God box. Because of the God <laughs> box, yeah. That was a real, you know, I didn't have any pictures. How could I make a God box, for heaven's sakes? So um, this woman, so this is how I got my sponsor. This um, rehab had a an outreach office in Dallas. I mean, the rehab was in the Hill Country, and they had an outreach office in Dallas, and there was this lady telling her story there that night, uh, the day that I got out. I had also been to my therapist, and she said, okay, now you've been to the big book um, rehab. Uh, you need to go to this thumper, a big book thumper type of meeting. And, you know, I, I felt uh, so much better than I had felt in other meetings because it, it's a very different format than a typical AA meeting. But I at once just went, oh, yes, I am here. This is where I should be. I stayed, and they, they were my um, home group. And there was that woman that told her story, you know, a couple days before. She became my sponsor, um, is still my sponsor today, although we did have a, a minor breakup somewhere around my fifth year, I think. I'm not sure, uh, for a little bit, but we are together again. Mm. Yeah, that was my first time through the steps. It was very, like the book says, you know. We were launching, and we were immediately ing all over the place. And um, I was done in in a month, and she was on vacation for a week of that. Wow. So you know, uh, I was I was done, and I was a very changed person. I went back to uh, I, I was keeping my my space in line at um, at the AA group I had been going to before the Thumper group. 
And what does that mean, keeping your space in line? I was just, uh, I, I was keeping my options open. Okay. That's all. Gotcha. And so I went back there. People immediately saw a very huge difference in me. The, the wow, wow, what, wow, you, what happened? What happened? And um, one lady said that I, I left as Eeyore and I came back Tigger. Aww. And I did. I mean, I was just so excited. You know, I wanted to shove this book down every woman's throat. Like we do. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to because I have an answer. Mm-hmm. If only you'll ask me to sponsor you. <laughs> and I did. I started sponsoring. Um, I think I was two or three. I was three months out. Let's see. I got out in April or the end of March. And I was um, sponsoring by July 1st, whatever that is. That one didn't take. The, the lady told me up, up front that she was no way in hell was she going to make, uh, was she going to apologize to the person that she stole the $10,000 from. So, you know, that one didn't, didn't last. It, certainly, we didn't get through the steps on that one. Did you go ahead and, like, try to work the steps with her I did or? well I didn't know yeah you know this was my first attempt mm-hmm. not only that she she stood me up and it was it was way down on the south side it was like near I think it was in a town called Ennis the only thing I know that's there is the uh there's a still a drive-in movie theater I don't know if they still do now but I took my son there at one point but it was a very, very far drive. I got there one day to work with her, and she was still in bed. She said, why didn't you call me? Uh, that was it. Um, no. Mm. Are you or someone you know struggling with the inability to stop drinking? At the Magdalene House, we believe that alcoholic women deserve a place to recover with dignity. In our two-week residential program, clients will be introduced to what alcoholism is and what alcoholism isn't, as well as be presented with a solution, all in a loving and supportive environment. All of our programs are at absolutely no cost, and because we accept no government money, we can accept women all over the world and stick to our own curriculum. If you want to stop drinking and cannot, Call 214-324-9261 for a phone screen. But you sponsor a lot of women now. Um, I Well, I do and I did, uh, certainly in my career in Dallas. Things are different in Chicago. I've, mm, I was living in two places at once for quite a while, and I didn't fully move to Chicago until 2019 Um, but I had had I was heavy 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 into service commitments Um, I I was one of those that was so situated you might say um, that I could devote a lot of time to this Um, because although I did end up getting divorced at least I I didn't have to um, work too hard let's say that and so I had service commitments lined up for every day. So I wanted something to do every day, make sure I get out of the house, but I could find a lot of women that way. So I did, and um, I've sponsored a lot of people in Dallas. Now in Chicago, uh, I don't live in Chicago 
proper. I live in uh, on the North Shore. I actually I live in the town um, where Home Alone was made. The Home Alone house is uh, not far from my house. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's a cool place. And oh, Ferris Bueller was there. Was made there. All the all the John Hughes movies, um, Sixteen Candles, and all that would. The, that had a love affair with Winnet. It's Winnetka. Mm-hmm. Um, had a love affair with Winnetka in the eighties. Now, where was I? You were talking. We were talking about sponsorship, and you were saying how you sponsored oh. a lot of women in Dallas. Yes. yes. Well, Chicago, um, so far, and I've been looking around. COVID has been a real killer for finding women to sponsor. Um, I found one decent big book meeting on Wednesday nights Zooming, and it's still Zooming today. There were very few. Uh, COVID seemed to last longer in Chicago, at least the restrictions did. Um, very few live meetings. And I, I couldn't see a lot of sense to me in joining a bunch of Zoom meetings where the person, the people might be different than they were in real life. And I wasn't picking up any sponsees because they were the same people over and over and over again. The only people that I sponsored during COVID were recommended to me, and I sponsored them um, Zoom on Zoom, but they were recommend, I was recommended by a therapist. Uh, I used to do her IOP as a service commitment. Oh, wow. And That's kind of cool. Yeah, and so she, she gave me um, two or three one is still sober. One fired me. Or did, no, no, oh no, I fired her. <laughs> I forgot. Um, yes. We were just talking about being fired as sponsors before you got here. Uh, well, and you know, it's if your ego is in check. Yeah. And mine mine has been. I yeah. mean, it's no big deal. I, I love the women who fired me. I love them Same. deeply. Yeah, yeah. go yeah. ahead, fire me. I don't care. I, I can't be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. And I do realize that, um, usually. <laughs> Sometimes I, I might think I can. That's, that's what I did. That's what I did. Mm. So I want you to... I want to make sure I ask you, um, well, first I just want to say that, so in Next Step, the participants do step presentations. And there was one participant who I was just like blown away by her step three. And she did this little drawing that I actually use and I put into our um, curriculum. Anyway, she said she learned from you. I didn't know you put it in the curriculum. That is so cool. Yes. I just, you know, and it's, and it, but it also, it just goes to show that like, um, that I like, I'm learning, like I get to learn things from clients, which is like mm-hmm. the best talking about like, so I know you mentioned your step three experience, but can you talk a little bit more about step three and, mm-hmm. okay. and, the little and like drawing what is, it is, is stuff. Drunk Betty. Um, her name originally was Drunk Susan. And um, one day I was pulling up to Maggie's and across the parking lot, hey, Drunk Susan's here. And I was like, oh, God, she's getting a new name today. <laughs> so Drunk Betty, I made up um, just kind of standing there. It's kind of a correlati- corollary to... Um, issue man if you know who that is if you don't don't worry about it um 
But um, anyway, so Drunk Betty is is just about um, making sure that you turn your entire will and your life over to God as you as you understand him. And by the way, God, as you understand him, it appears at both steps three and 11. And of course, throughout all of the steps, but it appears specifically, God, as I understand him at those two steps. And it's a good time to make a check. Um, If my God at step 11 is the same thing I had on step three day, then there's something very, very wrong going on. Uh, because after all, this is a journey to find the power, and I, I would not have found the power if, if it, everything stayed the same. I put that in the curriculum. Oh, did <laughs> you? I heard you say uh, uh, There you go. Uh, <laughs> Hardly anything is original thought. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, I, I, I took from somebody... Um, I have a mind that can't keep me from the first drink and a body that can't keep me from the second through 20th. And I think that's a really good way to Mm -hmm. describe what we have. And what's another one? Delusion is uh, a belief held despite all the evidence to the contrary. Mm. That's another really good one. And denial isn't really in the book. Delusion is in the book. Yep. Denial is what? It's a place in Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wah, wah. <laughs> so um, step three. So it, it is I make a decision to turn my will in my life. Um, what I found particularly um, intriguing um, about step three Oh, I'm going to make two two points. Don't let me forget the second one. Okay. Um, is that um, any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. See, my book is so marked. I can't read the page numbers <laughs> on it. Okay. Is that the, the spiritual malady is not limited to alcoholics. Right. I hear all the time in meetings, someone will say, well, I'm a selfish, self-centered alcoholic. Well... Have you done your steps yet or what? I mean, what are we talking about here? The spiritual malady is not unique. It says any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. And wouldn't life just be better if I managed it well? Wouldn't everybody be happy living under my my reign with my little tiara on? Everybody would be happy if they did Susan's bidding I think (laughs) you would you would (laughs) step three is is about that what was the other thing I wanted to bring up oh no I now I've forgotten it I should have written it down I hope it'll come back I love the beginning of how it works you know that it's it gives us the um, honesty open-mindedness and willingness I look at that as a checklist of the foundation you know the first paragraph of how it works is about honesty and then the next one, um, it says that we're willing to go to any length that would be willing. Finally, that uh, fearless and thorough until we let go, absolutely. So look for the what I call fighting words in here. And they are the, the emphatic words. I mean, there are, it says we beg of you to be fearless and thorough fearless and thorough and we've got other words complete abandon abandon rigorous honesty they mean it 
um, let go absolutely. They wouldn't write those words if they weren't part of it. So that when you're doing your step work, please remember remember to include all the adjectives and adverbs. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get the result unless you apply it as directed. So there's that. Uh, what else? Oh, I love in step three too. It's on page 62. I did not think selfishness and self-centeredness when I went to kind of a practice a meeting, you know, somewhere in the nineties, um, when, when probably when my drinking was beginning to bother my husband, you know, they were talking about being selfish and self-centered. And I thought, well, that certainly isn't my problem. So I guess they're all drinkers and drunk because they're selfish and self-centered right. see you later see i'll see you in 15 years or whatever <laughs> it was we'll see you later bye mm. it says here that, that and i love this is where you see the word self by itself usually it says ourselves or it's like self-propulsion self-something or other but here you know, there's no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Self, self-ego, whatever you want to call it, but self is my problem. And I, because I didn't know what selfishness was. I didn't know I didn't know it. I didn't really even know what dishonesty was. Can Do you mind saying what it is for those who are listening who maybe don't know? Yeah. Selfishness and self-centeredness and is, is um, well, I don't know how I can, I can describe it, but I don't know that yeah. I can give a, a definition yeah, of it. Yeah, describe it. Selfish and self-centered is, is uh, you've heard the phrase, uh, you know, uh, wearing a new pair of glasses. Mm-hmm. something something along those lines is that I, I can only look at the world through my own glasses mm-hmm. and I'm not willing to change the prescription at all or put on your glasses or um, anything else it's it's I am going to do it with with the facts as they are presented to me and as they are perceived by me Mm -hmm. my sponsor says like looking at it through our selfish and self-centered lens yes yeah yeah Yeah. there you got that's a lens yeah it's a lens you know and now it's so easily up to me it's very easily apparent and in most cases in nearly all cases you know it wasn't that way to begin with i needed a lot of sponsor help Mm -hmm. and i think i still believe that 90% 90% of the battle of, I'm talking kind of 10 step right here, but 90% of the battle is recognizing whatever the character defect is to mm-hmm. begin with, you know, and then pausing and thinking about it, what have you. But I like that, that the book says that people, people, God made us. He gave us, remember that it says that we're going to get down to causes and conditions, that we're part of our makeup. Mm. That is endemic to me. Is that the right word? That sounds I don't good know. to me. Yeah, sometimes I like to throw out words. <laughs> See if you catch me, it probably means something completely different. Um, but it is, it is, it is um, inherent. It is, it is biologically put in me to be um, uh, somewhat um, self-centered, I mean to survive Mm -hmm. and to thrive 
And, um, you know, I always said, I used to say, you know, if there's one mammoth out there and I got to feed my family, you know, we're going to blows about that. Mm -hmm. And you're going down because my family's hungry. Mm -hmm. No sharing about it. We've got to, uh, we've got to feed my family. But, you know, and then we can go off into the 12 and 12 with, with, uh, you know, um, self-will run riot is when we take these, what we're meant to be, you know, they're, they're, they're not defects until we take them to the nth degree, then they become defects. But it is, it's part of my makeup so that I can survive in this world to be uh, and somewhat self-centered. I don't know what else to say, but mm-hmm. I can't be, uh, we are not saints. And I, I love that line and, and how it works because who are saints but people who do give their will and their lives entirely to God and, and perform his work. And I don't see that coming around the bend in my life at all. You know, nobody's nominated me for sainthood <laughs> yet, nor do I know any saints. <laughs> So, okay, you did say in the beginning and that you still have um, a hard time with the God part of the program. What did, like, it, you sound very, like, God-reliant and God-centered to me. Mm-hmm. Like, what did you mean by that? I had a hard time because of my Catholicism and um, just meaning I had, oh, this is, I wanted to bring this up, okay, in Bill's story. Because... I thought that that's, I had to run with God as I understood him, which was, you know, God of my my grade school, high school, and college. That is how I understood him. I didn't see how that was going to help me because, you know, I was waiting. You know, part of Drunk Betty is I kept trying to throw my alcoholism up into the God, the God power. God, take my alcoholism. Take it. Or make it so I can drink normally, but take the yes. whole thing if you have to. <laughs> but just take, you know, whatever. But just take it, take it, take it. You know that 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 intrinsic belief that uh, that I knew God had something to do with this. I want to go back into Bill's story. You know that line where it says, "Why don't you choose?" And that's where we got. That's where you choose your um, higher power. And that's why we get doorknobs and things like that, um, because oh, uh, the first, yeah, the first rehab that I was at, this lady, she said, "I got my higher power," and we said, "What is it?" She said, "It's my dog," <laughs> and I thought, "Ooh, that's a good one, <laughs> right?" My dog. You know, we're not looking for inspiration here. We are looking for power here. Um, and so, in and so, where it says to choose your own God, you know, my sponsor wants me to write down, or I had a sponsor once, write it down. And I thought, you know, in retrospect, I think how arrogant is that? Susan gets to define who God is good for you know yeah even though it it actually it says that we can't comprehend God yeah yeah we can't but but we will that's right (laughs) we can't comprehend it but your sponsor says write it down so write it down right in Bill's story I love it on that page where's that page it's on page 12 I think isn't it my friend suggested uh, 
a God personal to me. Yeah. So before, before it says that, they're talking about, Bill is talking about his preconceived idea of God, what he was taught. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man. I had always believed in a power greater than me. I had pondered these things. I was not atheist. Few people really are. So he's just kind of, you know, waxing poetic here, talking about God. So when he says, why don't you choose your own conception, I don't think that the book is talking about choose it right now. I think that they are, in in the context, Bill was saying, you can put that aside. And I always refer to that as putting Jesus up on the shelf. Mm. You know, I'm going to do this work without any preconceived idea of what God is. Yeah. As it turns out, my, my conception of God is exactly what the the appendix says, the uh, appendix two, hold on. And the, and the spiritual experience. And I love these words, you know, Silkworth says that we uh, that we need a psychic change, and so that's a really good term for those who are kind of God queasy, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, we got um, a psychic change going on here. Let's see. Up, okay, I'm on. Um, I'm on uh, the spiritual experience. A profound alteration in his reaction to life. On page fifty-five. In uh, We Agnostics, it says that deep down inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It's one of my favorite lines. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's so lovely. Yeah. And it may be obscured by calamity and pomp or whatever those words are. Obscured. But it's deep down inside. Mm-hmm. And so I had always been looking for God from without from without of me as opposed to from within me. I was looking for God at the church, or I was looking for God in all the wrong places. I was looking for God outside of me. And what I found is that I've got God deep down inside me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's beautiful. And and that's why, and and, and that works with God queasy people too. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make me my own higher power because I've had this profound alteration in how I view life. I've had this profound, um, I'm a member of a, a big book thumper group on Facebook. Boy, <laughs> things fly around there. Talk about egos. You know, everybody's got their own ideas of what this book says and they're positive of it oh for sure absolutely positive of it and and la, la, la. hold on a sec i don't know how you can read that book i know well that's why i have a second book i'm transcribing because <laughs> i left it out in the rain oh. see how it's all smushy yeah so this was my original book wow and yeah it's kind of a mess um Anyway, I don't know what I was going, I was looking for because it is such a mess. It's, I can't, I can't see because it's all smeary. But it, it, that is what God is. It's, it's, it is a profound, it is from within me. Mm-hmm. And it's just something, it's conscience. Oh, that's what I was going to with the big book thumper group. It's conscience. It's being awoke. 
mm-hmm. you know. And that's exactly what it is, you know. It's it's something that gets turned on yeah. that was asleep. Right. And it just gets turned on. And, and you don't even know that you're asleep until you're awake. But you never know you're yeah. asleep until you're awake, yeah. right? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how cool, like, that, that we get to experience that. Uh-huh. You know. Well, so we are, like, getting to the top of the hour. And I love, we've talked so much about God. It's been a while since I've just talk to somebody about God. I mean, we talk about God, obviously, because it's, you know, the steps is God. But just to have, like, an open conversation about God has been really cool. But if you would like to, um, do you want to, before we wrap up, do you want to tell the story about how you reconciled with your mom? Yeah, and I'll I'll try and make it it quick. You know, uh, as I said, I grew up with an alcoholic mom, my mom came to me. I was a freshman at Marquette University in Milwaukee. And my mom came to me, and uh, we went to lunch. And she said, Susie, I want to tell you, I am going to make up, make it up to you, all the heartache that you've had. And I didn't know what she was doing. I was 18 years old, certainly, mm-hmm. whatever. So she was obviously doing a nine-step. And I, all I heard, because she had apologized before, was wah, 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 you know. Okay, thanks, Mom, great. So I gave her a hug outside my dorm. And that was February 27th, 1976. And strangely enough, February 27th was the day that the deer came to me. Isn't oh, that wow. weird? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know. 33 years later, I think it's 33. So I hugged my mom outside the dorm, and that was the last I ever saw my mom. Um, She was 42 years old. She dropped dead at an AA meeting. How's that, you know? Um, One week after that hug. And she was sober? And she was sober, but I don't know if she... I mean, she was sober at the AA meeting, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if she ever got any kind of promises you know she must have been scared to death as I said she couldn't work she could she didn't know anything she Mm -hmm. got married at 18 all she knew how to do was use a charge card you know she couldn't it was terrible I don't know why she was doing that and when was that that was uh February of 76 so come 33 years later um I'm doing step work and everything and I just had this real earth-shattering um, uh, feeling of, oh, my God, my mom. Uh, it was my reckoning of myself as an alcoholic. And she didn't mean it. She couldn't help it. She must have been terrified. And this, this whole thing, and it, oh, it makes me cry to think of it. Um, she really wanted out of that marriage. Uh, you know, I, I I reconciled with my mom. I went to the cemetery. We I had written, um, my brothers and sisters and I had written little notes, and we stuck it in her coffin. This was, she was only 42. She had no symptoms whatsoever. She just dropped dead. Wow. So it was it was quite shocking. But so we wrote little notes. I have no idea what I wrote in my note. But I went, uh, my therapist said, write a letter. 
and I wrote a letter and I went to the gravesite and I did the letter with my mom. I have so much more compassion and love for her now, I am crying, than I ever had before, just by virtue of me having mm-hmm. uh, walked in those footsteps. Mm-hmm. So um, it was very profound. And I hope my daughter, my daughter, she says we have the best relationship ever. <laughs> and um, she's 30 years old now. Mm-hmm. As I said, I've been sober 13 years. But I just feel that we aren't where we could be. She calls me up at all the important moments of her life, but I feel like we could be closer. I don't know if she's carrying some vestiges. She said she's not. Anyway, I hope that someday, not through the way I had to learn it, she will realize that this really is an illness. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a choice. Right. God knows it's not a choice. But anyway, reconciliation. Oh, reconciliation. I am dating my ex-husband. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Uh, yes. How interesting is that? Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. 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 Uh, who I certainly didn't see that one coming. <laughs> so anyway. Well, this has been so much fun and a lot of good stuff has been has been said. Yeah, I'm looking forward to to this going out. The final question is if you could leave the listeners with one takeaway, whether it's for um, the alcoholic who's trying to get sober maybe the alcoholic who is sober and dry or just the alcoholic who's suffering, what would you want to say? It's something I already said. Say it again. that would be include all the adjectives and adverbs. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, that's too important. They are there for a reason. If you, if you do it halfway, you know, half measures avail is nothing. Mm-hmm. But they mean it. Yeah. And, and do it. We beg of you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. If you all have enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, share with a friend, upload to your Instagram stories, all of the things so we can spread more experience, strength, and hope. Um, thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, Stephanie. I was so glad and honored to be here. Yes, me too. And to all of our listeners, I will see you guys next time. Bye. podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.